Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 28th, and this is the weekly market update. Got the disclaimer here. I'm not going to read it. I've read it before. Um, I'll keep it up here. You can read it. Just want to wish everybody happy holidays. Um, really focusing on the things that we need to be thankful for if you're healthy, if you have a job, if you do not have a lot of turmoil in your life, if you have people around you that you care about and care about you, you should be thankful. Not everybody has those things. Matter of fact, most people have some kind of chaos and turmoil going on. So enjoy this time if you are uh, blessed and uh, think about those that are less fortunate. Sometimes it's easy to ignore them. Anyways, uh, the disclaimer, basically it's your money, it's your responsibility. This is uh, not investment advice and I'm not a registered investment advisor, accountant, financial advisor. This is just information for informational purposes and entertainment purposes. So this week's reality check. I had uh, some feedback from a listener that said, that I spend too much time on macroeconomics and not enough about individual stocks and things of that nature. Well, I do spend a lot of time uh, analyzing individual stocks and that's in the paid newsletter. Um, there's a lot of, I'm not saying this particular individual, but there's a lot of cheap Charlies that want me to just like give all the work that I do for free. I'm not going to do that. I do give occasional picks. I do point people in directions of other people that I follow that uh, you know are pretty smart and have made public declarations of various companies. But uh, I'm not just, this is not going to be a you know, Greyhound track tip sheet. And I'm sorry if that uh, you know, doesn't meet some people's needs, I'm not going to do that. The reason why we talk about macro and politics here along, among other things is because those things are relevant and actionable to what we're doing. You know, the world around us creates perceptions and creates sediment that's reflected in the markets and what people do with their money and their, and their perceptions. So trying to understand that and trying to formulate a view, a worldview is incumbent upon us if we want to be success, is incumbent to being successful in the markets. You know, this isn't just about, you know, let me find what's hot and buy it. Anyway, um, Chris Mayer wrote a book called uh, 100 100 baggers or something like that. It was basically similar to the other book that I've talked about before, 101 in the stock market, 100 to one in the stock market. And it basically analyzed various companies that had went 100 to one and what they had in common. Very good book, uh, I recommend it. Uh, this week in his weekly, about every other week or weekly, Chris Mayer puts out a blog post and in this week's blog post, he attached a PDF called the 100 to 1 in the, or 100 Baggers, the Lost Chapter. And in it, he had a, several stories about very successful, wealthy people and stories about them and their views on how, they, how to get wealthy, how just, it was really good. I'm, I'm going to attach a link to it. Um, I also put it up on the investment letter curation site that I run. That's where I'll link to. So you can take a look at that site too, but that will take you to the link with uh, Chris's PDF. And what I wanted to talk about this week in this week's reality check was one of the people that he 
profiled, which was a guy named Felix Dennis. He wrote a book on how to create real wealth. And I read the book. Uh, the guy was uh, kind of a character. Uh, he was uh, a, made his money in magazines. But what I wanted to emphasize is something that Felix Dennis said and that I think is appropriate and what people need to focus on. And I was going to do a whole video on this, but I think this is just, you know, maybe it's worthy of its own video, but I just wanted to touch on it in the reality check. And so what Chris says in the, in his, in his, uh, letter is reviewing the book that, uh, Felix Dennis wrote about how to become wealthy. Dennis has a good chapter on ownership. What he's talking about is ownership of companies. Okay. Capital. He says it isn't the most important thing, it's the only thing. To become rich, you must be an owner and never give it away. You must be an owner. You must be an owner. You're not gonna get rich trading time for money. Not become wealthy trading time for money. Wealthy people own things. Things that appreciate in value, things that produce income, and they hold them for long periods of time never give it away. He's talking about owning your own business, but the same idea applies generally to investing in capitalistic societies. Those who get rich own things. It is to the owners of capital that go the spoils. If you don't have any, you have no shot at getting wealthy. If you work as a cubicle rat or a wage slave, you can have a nice living. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, you know, but if you want to create wealth, you have to own things. You have to own businesses. You have to own real estate, okay? Uh, one of the things I encourage people to do, and it's so easy now, um, you know, after the 2008 recession, one of the things the Obama administration got right was they allowed, um, they created legislation for small companies at the seed stage to raise capital up to a million dollars um, from non-accredited investors. Non-accredited investors are people that like, you know, the average person. And the amounts were very low. So a lot of sites sprung up. It's called equity crowdfunding, something I've been involved with for several years. And what has happened is, is you have people creating businesses, founders, finding problems to solve, finding ways to do it, creating businesses. And they go and they take the idea and they pitch it, and just like they do to venture capitalists or uh, angel investors. And typically to play in that market, you need to be an accredited investor, somebody that has over a million dollars in assets, excluding your house, or has, I think, 250,000 or 200,000 in income each year for the last three years. Basically, these are you know rules that were put in place to so-called protect the average person uh, from, from being you know, taken advantage of. The idea being that if you have over a million dollars or you have that level of uh, income, that you're more sophisticated than, you know, Joe the plumber. Uh, but what happens is, is, you know, these people then have access to these deals that you don't. And some of these things go up tremendously. You know, there's a story I like telling about what can happen around these, these companies, uh, investing in angel companies or at the angel stage or at the seed stage. And, you know, Lance Armstrong, the guy that won all those Tour de France championships, I mean, he made a tremendous amount of money doing that from sponsorships and all the other things, all the fame and everything that he had. But then it came out that he was a steroid freak. 
that he abused steroids, that he cheated. So he had to give everything back. And he was like facing, you know, financial problems because of this. And the story goes that his financial advisor had got him involved in several seed stage companies, one of which being Uber. So he got involved in Uber back when it was at the seed stage. And I don't know how much that, that, that nobody really knows the amount, but basically the story is, is that, you know, once Uber blew up like it did and went public, um, Mr. Armstrong's, uh, I think it was about a hundred thousand dollar seed stage investment was worth, you know, eight figures, 10 or 15, 20 million, something like that. If I remember the story correctly. So I'm telling you, I mean, this is not get rich quick though. So you have the opportunity, even as a small investor, some of the minimums on some of these companies to get involved in these deals is only a hundred bucks. And so what you need to do is you need to own parts of businesses. If you can't start your own business, you can buy pieces of other people's businesses at the early stage. Now, it's extremely risky. There's several things that go into this, just like any other business. A lot of most businesses fail, right? A lot of businesses fail for many reasons. And same thing with these seed stage investments. So that's why you must create a portfolio. You must create a, what I call an orchard, a, 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 a bunch of trees you must plant. And you're, you're talking about a long-term commitment, you know, minimum five to 10 years. This is locked up capital. And so, you know, there's so many sites now that have this. And I'll probably do another video about how I do this and how I evaluate companies. But there are so many ideas coming, so many, it's not just stuck in Silicon Valley anymore. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley and have a seat at the table. A lot of these deals are coming public now and a lot of people are, are coming, they see the advantage. The other thing is, is that, you know, you, you can then own parts of these businesses, create a portfolio. I mean, I'm probably in, I've been doing this for four or five years. I'm probably in 50 or 60 deals. That's what you want to see. Because what you're hoping for, what you're going to see, what I'm going to end up seeing, I hope, or what the, what the, it's a shotgun approach, if you will. So you take a piece of each of these deals and I'm not in for a hundred bucks. I, I, I go in for substantially more. And, and uh, as you get, have more resources, you'll be able to do that. Although you are limited uh, per year on what you can do. Uh, nevertheless, uh, what's going to happen is hopefully about 80% of these businesses are going to go to zero. They're just not going to make it for whatever reason. About 10%, uh, maybe they'll do okay. And then you're hoping that, or 10 to 15% will do okay, but you're hoping that the five, you know, two, three, four, five percent of them go, you know, 100 to one. And that makes up for all the failures, plus gives you a really above average return. You can't just buy one or two of these things. Um, so I'll, I'll do a, another video on that, but um, that's one of the things I'm talking about. That's one thing that I do. And then investing in good, solid companies in the stock market when they're undervalued. You're owning something. You're buying something for less than its value. Okay. I saw a tweet this weekend that somebody put out that, uh, you know, we talk about Peter Lynch is a famous investor. He ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund, had tremendous returns. And what the research did, I didn't have time to look this up, but I'm going to. I'll probably report back on it. The research showed, if you can believe it, that most of the people or quite a few of the people that invested in the fund actually had a loss. This fund compounded capital at some tremendous amount of rate over many years. And yet a good portion of the people that invested in it lost money. Why? 
because what they what probably happened was is the fund had a good year. Everybody piled into it because that's what people do. They have a herd mentality. And then they, you know, subsequent to that, there was a, a big drawdown and then they sold at the bottom. If you're going to be somebody that's going to end up wealthy, you have to either start a business, invest in businesses, but you have to invest, invest in them at the right time. You have to be getting value, okay? If you're out there buying these tech stocks at these high valuations, history shows that you will, over the next 10 years, have a substandard return. They're just not capable of generating enough cash flow to justify the price that was paid. That's just how it is. And people you know, will make all kinds of reasons why I'm, that's wrong. That's not history. History shows that I'm right. It's never different. So you need to own things, parts of businesses or your own business or real estate, and you need to never give it away. That means you need to do it for the long term. And that's why I like the seed investing and angel investing because it locks your capital in. It keeps you from one of the main biases that people have, which is short-term churning of their account, constantly trying to trade. Okay, once your capital goes in, it's stuck in there until there's an exit, whether the thing goes belly up, whether the thing gets acquired, whether it gets, um, uh, you know, goes public or whatever. You can't uh, sell, although... Uh, I did see one of the companies, I believe it was Start Engine, has created a, an exchange now. The only thing on there is their own company, but you're going to see more of that. And I think that's a little bit dangerous because it kind of defeats the purpose of locking capital in long term. But that's a whole other argument. What I'm trying to get to you is the fact that, you know, these f losers and fools that talk about equality of outcome, I mean, I ignore these people. And it doesn't really matter. I don't get too depressed when I hear like, oh, the U.S. is going to turn into that. The U.S. is still the best place in the world to invest currently and one of the best tax havens in the world. Okay. We have still have majority rule of law here. Uh, believe me, there's plenty of places you can go around the world and get ripped off. I will say, though, that there are many countries around the world that are moving in a more open legal um, direction. And it, it does behoove you to look to those and find those and try to place capital in those. I use the example of uh, the country of Georgia. Um, in the top 10, top five in all metrics uh, in, in the European Union, it's not in the European Union, but it's compared to a lot of the countries there. It's seeking to, to get in there. It's at the easternmost fringe of Europe, almost in Asia. But uh, you know, for ease of starting business, corruption index is low. Um, you know, rules and regulations, very, very competitive because why? It's a small country. It needs to attract capital and it realizes it's competing against other, other countries around it in order to create a, um, a framework, a, 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 a system that is attracting capital. And that's what you need to be seeking out and looking for. And, you know, that's a country that's grown five to 6% a year, every year for the last 10 years that you put money into a country like that, you will compound your capital. And that's what we're talking about. So I'll probably do another video about this, but I wanted to bring this up because um, this is a very important idea. Most people gloss over it. I don't know very many traders that are, that are very, very wealthy. I'm sure they're out there, um, but you know, you're just gambling if you're a trader. I don't try to trade. I try to find undervalued situations or 
situations that aren't really assessed, being assessed correctly, or the perception is, market's perception is incorrect, and then buy them at a discount, and then wait for a catalyst to uh, change market's perception and revalue them higher. So again, to become rich, you must be an owner. Being a wage slave isn't going to get you where you need to go. Okay, I was hesitant to go over this, but I can't help myself. You guys know me. I will say this. There are going to be several references in here to unnameable diseases. That's how I'm going to say it, because if I say the actual word that you can read here, uh, the algorithm in YouTube dings me, and I could actually get banned uh, for even talking about this. Um, this is why I think this is important. The, you know, we talked about last week's uh, reality check about Clark, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and you know the reason why the masters of the universe, the elites, uh, are looking to reset everything because of all the debt and because of all the economic malaise. They don't know how to get out of this mess they've created, except to break the thing, tear it down, and restart. Restart, and they're using the uh, unnameable disease as a catalyst along with climate change in order to enable them to do this. I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. I think that's <clears throat> what they have said and what they're trying to do. Um, that's my view. This is very interesting. Now I got this off the Wayback machine because this thing got memory hold. This is not off some conspiracy website. This is a reference to an article that was called a closer look at US deaths due to the unnameable disease. This was an article that was published in uh, the John Hopkins newsletter. Uh, this newsletter is published by the students of John Hopkins, okay? Um, this newsletter has been published since 1896. So this is not some conspiracy, this is not Alex Jones, this is not some conspiracy website. So basically, the gist of the article is that the deaths in the US during the unnameable, unnameable disease are basically the same as before the unnameable disease. There's been no change in the overall death rate in the U.S. pre or pr prior to this whole deal. Now, I'm going to put a link to the article. It's being archived on the Wayback Machine. This thing got memory hold because they don't want you to see this. So here's a few tidbits from the article. Surprisingly, the deaths of older people stayed the same before and after the unnameable disease. Since the unnameable disease mainly affects the elderly, experts expect an, expected an increase in the percentage of deaths in older age groups. However, this is, increase is not seen from the CDC data. That's Centers for Disease Control. It's not made up. In fact, the percentages of death among all age groups remain relatively the same goes on, it talks about this Breon. This is the person that did the work on this statistics. This person does statistics like John Ioannidis at Stanford University, who's a statistician that does um, infectious disease analysis. Another guy that's got marginalized that actually knows what he's talking about, but no one listens to. Breon also noted that 50 to 70,000 deaths are seen both before and after unnameable disease indicating that this number of deaths was normal long before unnameable disease emerged. Therefore, according to Briand, not only has unnameable disease had no effect on the percentage of deaths of older people, but it has also not increased the total number of deaths. You know, it's interesting. There was another article out 
that shows that basically influenza this season is almost collapsed. They show that the average amount of influenza for this time of year or the, the flu season is basically collapsed. So what is going on here? It seems like there's a lot of substitution of unnameable disease to cover all the other deaths so that we can get the numbers up for the unnameable disease so that we can enable, you know, some of the things that we're doing. These data analysis suggests that in contrast to most people's assumption, the numbers of deaths by the unnameable disease is not alarming. In fact, it has relatively no effect on deaths in the United States. I mean, this is shocking if true. This is not Alex Jones. This is not some guy on the internet. This is from John Hopkins University, the student newspaper. And this thing got memory hold. You can go there. It's on the Wayback Machine. I'll put a link to it. You can go look at the stats yourself. You can do the work yourself and come to your own conclusion. Now, do I think there's some grand conspiracy here? No. What I think is, is like Louis Gov said from Gov, Cap Gov Cal Capital. It's a CYA mentality. And the media hyped this thing so big, and now no one's going to come out and say, you know what, gee, you know, I'm sorry that uh, we destroyed your business and destroyed your life, and now you got divorced and lost your home, and one of your kids committed suicide, but uh, we were kind of wrong. <clears throat> sorry. No one's going to say that. They're just going to double down on what they're doing. That's why you're seeing more of these dumb lockdowns. This article got yanked in memory hold. I said I wasn't going to editorialize, but I guess I did. But consider if this information is correct. Why is it not front page news? Why is it on the Wayback Machine hidden? Why did it get memory hold? Could it be that this data does not comport with the elite's great reset plan? Just ask yourself. I'm not going to get into it, right? Because I've already talked about it. I have my views. Um, I'm not saying that my views are correct. You may not agree. Uh, this is what I see. I mean, I see a total class A cluster bungle. And, you know, these dumb politicians hyped up by the media to get bad orange man bad to wreck the economy have done untold damage to people's lives. The unseen, as Bastiat said. And they're doubling down again. And now we have the data showing Johnny Anidis has said the same thing. PhD at Stanford, that's all he does is statistical analysis of disease. It's basically your chances of dying of the unnameable disease are the same as driving to work every day. You don't even think about driving to work every day. Uh, here's an interesting chart I got off Twitter. I don't know if it's, this is accurate. It says the source is the U.S. Census Bureau. But it kind of makes sense, I guess, from what we're seeing. This is the percentage of adults living in households not current on rent or mortgage where eviction or foreclosure in the next two months is either very likely or somewhat likely. So what we've had during the unnameable disease phenomenon is that by fiat, governments have said in many jurisdictions that you're not able to, you know, collect rents or mortgages on people. They can claim that they're impaired. They get forbearance, but that's not unlimited, right? And that's going to run out, I believe, most of these rules at the end of the year. And so we have all these people that are basically living on borrowed time. And you can see the percentages, if this is accurate, 
some of these states are 30, 40% of the people, at least 20% of the people in many states uh, or more are living in households where they're not current on the rent or mortgage. Now, what we'd be curious to see is what was this before the unnameable disease, before all this forbearance? What I'm trying to get at here is there's going to be a whole lot of people getting thrown out on their butt because they can't pay their rent or mortgage. And you've got places that have 30 or 40% of the adult population. I don't think that's going to happen. The problem is, is we're compounding the problems now. We gave these people forbearance based on nonsense statistics. Wrecked their lives in many cases. They don't have the ability to pay. They're worried sick about what's going to happen to them. Do you actually think that we're not going to extend these, these mandates? That we're not going to print more money? That there's not going to be more forbearance? And then what happens to the landlords and the, and, and, and the banks that hold these mortgages? See, nobody thinks about the follow-on, knock-on effects of these policies. Well, it's the right thing, John. We don't want to throw all these people out in the street. Yeah, I agree. But if you're renting a house, somebody owns the house, and it's probably got a mortgage on it. What's that guy supposed to do? Does he get forbearance? No. And it works its way through the, the economy, back into the bank. Are we just going to bail everybody out? How big is the Fed's balance sheet going to be when this thing's all over with? Does anybody know? Does anybody care? I don't see anybody asking these questions. I can tell you one thing. These politicians will take the easy way out every time. I don't care who gets in as president or who's in the Congress. Uh, when this stuff starts to <coughs> excuse me, manifest on the evening news, you can bet your butt, bottom dollar these programs will get extended and more money will be printed because it's all about CYA, and they're not going to admit they were wrong. I mean, a lot of people's lives have been irreparably damaged. A lot of hopes and dreams have been dashed. Businesses have been destroyed. People are bankrupt. People are suffering. I just got done at my company. We put together a food drive on the construction site we're on. I don't know. We came up with about eight to $10,000 worth of cash and food items, delivered them to the food bank over here in South Texas. And when I went over there and delivered the stuff, the people were in tears. They were so grateful because they were telling me how desperate people are. When I was unloading the stuff in the front of the joint, a car drove up and said, can we get some of that food now? I mean, I'm not making this up. They've, had, they've shown on, on the news up in Dallas, food banks, now it's into the middle class. You've got, you, know, you don't see uh, beat up junker cars in line. You see like middle class people in line at food banks, miles long. Somebody has to answer for this. Somebody, you know, all the people that are employed, the government workers, the officials making these decisions, they're not held responsible. They are going to have a meal. They are going to get a paycheck. They are going to get taken care of. All the bureaucrats that are making these dumb decisions, all the people in the university system that are coming out with their holier-than-thou uh, ideas, they, ne they've been wrong. They ain't never been right about anything, ever. But science, John, science, yeah. How much can they print? How much can they put on the Fed's balance sheet? That's going to be the question. More news. People don't want to talk about macroeconomics. We have to, though. Negative yielding sovereign debt, a new record. 
seventeen and a half trillion dollars worth. Is there anybody in their right mind that would loan money to any of these governments for 10 years at negative rates? That means you're paying them to hold your money. That's why they called bonds in the 70s when real interest rates were negative, extremely negative. Even though inflation was very high, you had a nominally positive interest rate, but you had real rates that were negative. That's why they called bonds certificates of confiscation. You were losing purchasing power by holding government bonds. Now we have a new record on this negative yielding sovereign debt. And yet people are telling me are worried about the recent gold pullback. Please. Here's a something interesting. This is exactly what we thought would happen. The CRB breaks higher. This is the Commodity Research Bureau index, basically all your commodities. Look at this. Okay, you've got the golden cross, the 50-day has crossed, you know, back in late September. The 200-day now is starting to flatten. We've got this basically breakout from this trading range. Uh, so commodity prices are heading higher. Copper, six-year high. Soybeans, beans in the teens. You saw that article. Oil now has broken out higher. Yet the economy's collapsing. What's really going on? Well, you've printed tr trillions and trillions and trillions of currency units. You know, people tell me, well, John, you don't get it. Oil, you don't get it. That's the problem. You don't, most people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Do you know that oil demand is actually up year over year in China and several other Asian countries? Probably not. Do you know that air travel in the U.S. cracked a million people going through the uh, turnstiles at the airports? Things are recovering there. Oil demand is coming back, but supply has been massively constricted. And now you've printed all these currency units. You cannot just increase the amount of soybeans by snapping your fingers. You can't create more copper right now. You can't, uh, you know, create more oil or natural gas just by, you know, clicking your heels. You can create all the currency units you want by pushing a button on a computer at the New York Fed. And people say, well, you know, I mean, eventually this gets into the economy. We're getting to this stagflation where the economy is stagnant, yet the prices continue heading higher. Now, this may just be a temporary, you know, reflex. You know, we had this massive drop, deflationary scare. We've had all this money printing, but, you know, something's happening here. And supply of many, many commodities has been restricted because of all the massive shutdowns. This, this bears watching. Now, we've got a long way to go to get back up here, but this is, uh, you know, this is overbought in the near short term, but this isn't just one commodity. This is the basket. This is overall moving higher. Zinc, steel prices. I mean, across the board, folks. Want to show this. Um, Uranium Insider had this on his Twitter feed. Rising demand. I put this rising demand collides with diminishing supply. This is the nuclear power plants amount of pl not plants, but gigawatts under construction or entering service by 2025. And you can see uh, as we move out to 2025, which is five years from now, you're talking about 80 gigawatts. This is a lot of reactors. You see a lot of it's in China, right? Uh, a lot of it's in Russia, okay? Um, you know, France, South Korea, Japan. One of the things I noticed is uh, 
people haven't been paying attention, but it looks like finally uh, Japanese reactors are slowly but surely being turned back on, at least the ones that were able to meet the new requirements uh, that would allow them to come back on. So that's positive too. Now this doesn't take into account one wag on, the, on this, when Uranium Insider put this up, when Justin put this up, one wag said, well, this doesn't account for the reactors that are shutting down. Well, that's a point. We have to look at the overall amount. But what I'm trying to tell you is these reactors that are coming online are substantially larger. These are the 100 megawatt giants that are coming online, okay, or plus, and displacing a lot of older reactors that were in the five, 600 megawatt range. So overall, we are growing the amount of gigawatts attributable to nuclear power. Again, where are the new mines? I don't see announcements of any new mines coming online. As a matter of fact, we even see things like Olympic Dam, which had a big uranium byproduct component, BHP, so they're not going to move forward with the expansion. Now, that may change as copper prices go up and other metals go up. But, you know, I'm not seeing anybody saying, you know what, um, I found this uranium deposit. I need a billion dollars to bring it in production. Um, I've went to a bank, they've given me the money. They're not, that's not gonna happen because right now, the uranium price, as I've said many, many times, is not sufficient to entice new capital to come in. You need to see at least 50, $60 a pound for that to begin happening. And we haven't seen that. We've seen more, so we're basically living off, you know, as I said before, we're in an industry that's basically in liquidation, but yet the demand for the product increases. At some point, demand collides with diminishing supply and we have a upward price action. I would say though that a lot of the stocks are starting to move. There's been some really nice price action in a lot of the stocks that we follow, uranium stocks. So something's happening. And what do stocks do? Stocks are discounting mechanism. They look in the future, not the past. So, you know, I don't know when this thing turns. It's been a long, long trek. It's kind of like Columbus, you know, or the early explorers that were across the Atlantic and the sailors on the ships became more and more disillusioned. This is just another day, another day. Then they got in the Sargasso Sea and there was no wind and the ship wouldn't even make any way. And there was, you know, threats of mutiny. And then eventually, you know, they saw land. And um, that's kind of where we're at right now. We're in those summer doldrums or those South Atlantic doldrums, whatever, Caribbean doldrums, but no wind. But, you know, we have to be like those great explorers and say, you know, we believe that, you know, land is, is there. We're coming to that, uh, what we believe is going to happen based on our research. And the facts are what they are. Nuclear power is a growing industry and the amount of uranium coming online is diminishing. Okay, I want to talk about tax, tax loss season as a applies to gold. It's a very great opportunity. Hey, look, gold's recently dropped, right? It was really overbought. The sediment was really too much, too frothy. You know, once we got up to like two, over 2,000, everybody was talking about, we're going to go to 2,500, we're going to go to 5,000. So everybody that had bought, had bought, there was nobody else left. Sediment was off the charts. Time for a pullback. Many former bulls, gold bulls, are now claiming that the gold bull market is over. I don't think so based on the fundamentals that have carried us to this point. I think this is just a normal pullback due to massively overbought sediment. I'm still bullish long-term on the gold price. 
I believe that real interest rates drive the gold price, but real interest rates have recently ticked up. So that probably, that along with the overbought sediment is probably why the gold price has dropped. I don't think it has much to do with COVID vaccines and stuff like that, but uh, a lot of people think that. I think that this has mostly to do with, was really overbought. Too many people were on one side of the canoe and you know, real interest rates ticked up and that was the catalyst for a sell-off, a lot of short-term money. You know, I just told you and showed you a new record being set on record number of negative sovereign debt. So what are all the, you know, you're seeing more and more, looks, you got to think long-term and strategically about this. So all of a sudden, all these pension funds, all these people that were moving into gold to diversify um, are now going to sell and buy sovereign debt at negative interest rates. Why would they do that? What you're going to see, this is, this is short-term the market is a voting machine in the long term. It's a value machine, okay? Um, or a weighing machine. So anything can happen in the short term based on sediment, based on emotion, but long term fundamentals will out. You know, the dollar index has dropped below 92. That's not good. That's not positive for, uh, you know, that's positive, I mean, for gold and other commodities, you know, um, as we see more and more, what's that telling us? Is we're going to see more and more dilution of the dollar, more and more money printing? It's, it's due. I'm not sure that we've seen the end of political turmoil in the U.S. I have my own views on this. I'm not going to say anything right now because all it will do is just whack a hornet's nest. But um, don't be so quick to coronate Mr. Biden. I think some stuff's going to start coming out in the next couple of weeks that may uh, change a lot of people's opinions and views. Regardless, though, of who ends up president, massive deficit spending is going to continue. I mean, they have no choice now. You've crossed the Rubicon a long time ago. Okay, so in order to keep this airplane in the air, we need to apply more and more and more stimulus. Otherwise, we're going to have a crash landing. And they want to avoid the crash landings. So the people that run things, you know, I don't really um, have an opinion ex on that, except to say that my opinion is that the masters of the universe are going to do what's best for them. And I think you should be position yourself aligned with them if you want to be a rational speculator. You know, all these discussions of whether what I think should happen are irrelevant. It only matters what is going to happen or what is happening said that many times, but most people can't get that through their head. They trade and invest money based on what they think should happen. And the markets could care less what you think or want. I've learned that extremely hard myself, the hard way. You must look at things for the way they are, whether you like it or not, or stay out of the market because you will lose if you trade based on if you invest, if you speculate based on what you want to happen or what you think should happen, it only matters what's going to happen. That doesn't mean it's an endorsement of it. It just means that's what's happening, what I think is going to happen. It doesn't mean that I like it or endorse it. It's just what it is. We're here to make money. We're here to kill what we eat. We got to kill what we eat. So stock tax loss season, people that have losses in their gold stocks that were just in there because they were chasing a shiny object will be looking to sell into weak market to capture tax losses. That's a perfect chance to pick up bargains if you believe that gold's in a bull market, which I do. 
So I'm looking to pick up some bargains that really starts kicking off maybe in, as we get into December, watch some of the stocks that you want to buy that are, that are material stocks or gold stocks that have really dropped recently. I've seen a couple of my stocks drop 25, 30%. Nothing has changed fundamentally. Yes, the gold prices dropped back, but you know, it's, you know, when you're, when you're, mining costs all in are, you know, $1,100 an ounce, you're still making good margins at $1,700. And I expect that, you know, six months from now or a year from now, the gold price will probably be substantially higher. All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate you listening. Appreciate you tuning in. And uh, we look forward to the comments in the uh, comment section. And if you are interested in supporting my work, please, Anything helps, commenting, liking, sharing the videos, subscribing to the channel. Uh, those are things you can do to help me. I also have a Patreon channel. If you contribute to that, uh, at least $5, I will give you the current month's stock pick. That's a one-time, one-month thing. Some people have this idea that they get the stock pick in perpetuity if they stay subscribed to the Patreon. No, it's a one-time deal. I mean, why would I give you the stock pick every week or every month, that'd be $60 a year. The newsletter is 150. So a lot of people are confused on that. It's one time. So you can get a taste of what we're doing here. And then if you like it, you subscribe to the uh, actionable intelligence alert, which is uh, 150 a year. So want to mention that if you're interested and I have a lot of new subscribers to the channel. Um, appreciate your listening, appreciate you tuning in and have a good rest of your holiday weekend. Talk to you later.